everybody. Welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. Good morning. It's uh, really great to be here with you guys. Um, It's been a long time since I've spoken any length and uh, it's a real honor. I want to thank Jonathan for inviting me to, to share my story. And uh, it's going to be, I'm going to try and do a few things this morning. Uh, there's a little bit of teaching in there, but mostly I'm just going to tell you my story and hopefully you'll be able to appreciate and, and relate to some of the things that I'll share. I don't think, I think I can confidently say that probably everyone uh, who follows Christ will have some touch points. And uh, if, if at the end of all of this, you really would like to you know, hang out and talk and pray about anything that's going on, um, and you uh, feel that I have something to share, I'd be happy to help, happy to pray with you, come alongside. We are all just pilgrims, aren't we? We're just followers of Christ. None of us are special. None of us have, you know, we're, we're not better than anybody else. And my story is just my story. And I know that there are those of you in this room who have stories that are way more traumatic than, than mine. And I don't pretend to make it into something that it isn't. But it, it's what happened to me and it's my life. And, and so I share it for what it's worth. Um, I'd like to start, however, by um, dealing with a persistent rumor here at NAC, and that is that I come from South Africa. (laughs) Now, I can tell you exactly when this rumor started. It was approximately the year 2000 when my wife, Megan, and I and our kids uh, started coming to NAC, and we got involved. And I shared a story one morning, some of you may recall this, around Thanksgiving. I was very taken by the, uh, the proclamation by Abraham Lincoln around Thanksgiving in the U.S. Why did they proclaim it a national holiday? And so I got up and I shared this, and David made a comment at the time. He said, you'll really appreciate this considering where Don comes from. And I remember thinking, well, I come from Waterloo. Like, what's, <laughs> what do you mean where I come from, you know? And, and so this rumor got bedded into the church, and, I'm, and no word of a lie, I still run into people who think that I come from South Africa. Now, I am not ashamed if I, you know, to say that I don't or I did or whatever, that's not the point. My lovely wife comes from South Africa. And by the way, Megan could not join us this morning because she's up north uh, ministering to a whole bunch of ladies at a retreat. So God bless her, Lord, use her. Um, So like I said, I, I grew up in Waterloo and I had a pretty sort of normal life, lived in a rural environment. And I always had an interest in science, and uh, I was a, you know, 
average student, really. But as I got a little older, I started to really take an interest in science. And eventually, I went to university. I went to McMaster University, and I did a, a degree in, in biochemistry. So that's kind of like my scientific background. And at the end of my years at McMaster, I really uh, had been exposed to youth with a mission. Almost everybody I knew in Kitchener-Waterloo and Cambridge area uh, all of my friends had either been to YWAM or were going to YWAM. Those were the days. And the YWAM base was actually in Cambridge. It had moved from Dunham, Quebec, and moved to Cambridge. And so there was always stuff going on in the summer. They had these summer of services. We'd go out on the streets. We'd preach. We'd do all kinds of stuff. It was great. Um, and, and so I wanted to go to YWAM, but I didn't want to go to Cambridge because that's like, you know, next door. I want to do something exotic. So... I decided to go to England, and in 1982, I got on an airplane, and I flew to uh, the, the base in, in the UK. And I met, uh, well, no, I'm getting ahead of myself. It was great, loved YWAM. If you know anybody that's ever been, once you're a YWAMer, you're a YWAMer for life. And, uh, but during the course of that five months that I was there, I met this very nice young lady from South Africa. Uh, to whom I've been married now for uh, 43 years. Is it 43? Oh, I probably got that wrong. Sorry, honey. <laughs> anyway, um, a long time, and, uh, and, and we've been through lots. And so we, we, we developed this relationship. Now, during a YWAM school, you're not allowed to have a relationship, and uh, there's all these rules and stuff. And so at the end of the school, we decided that we really did have something special, and so we were encouraged to go and see the leadership team and tell them about it, which we did, and we were all very, you know, submissive and everything, and they just said, look, you know, we think if this is of the Lord, then you should go back to your respective countries and see what happens, and I'm sure behind the scenes, they're going, that'll never last, she's from South Africa, you know, it's like worlds apart. Well, when you know it, our relationship developed over the miles, and uh, much to my parents' chagrin, uh, on June 25th, 1983, I got an airplane to this place on the other side of the planet, literally. And I decided to go to graduate school there in South Africa at a university most people couldn't even pronounce, um, but it was a pretty famous university in Johannesburg. They turned out a couple of uh, Nobel laureates from that school. And I did a degree in medical biochemistry, so kind of added more of a medical component. And so began a career um, that's lasted um, many, many decades in the pharmaceutical, biotechnology industries, and then later on in the cell therapy industries. I'll explain that a little bit later. And so it was a, it was a great career. I, I enjoyed it. And uh, at the same time, as Jonathan mentioned, I got involved in ministry with Reasons to Believe, which is a science and faith sort of think tank. So I was using the science both in terms of ministry as well as in, in the workplace. And like I said, I had a, you know, pretty, a pretty good career. I worked for a number of companies. And we lived in South Africa for 14 years. So I was there a total of 14 years. And we came back to Canada in 1997. And we were part of the Vineyard Church initially and eventually landed here at NAC. And we were here for, for many, many years. Um, so that's sort of the background, if you like. Um, so I was working at a large pharmaceutical company in Toronto. And they were actually the company that brought us back to Canada, all expenses paid. It was pretty amazing. And uh, 
I don't want to say the, the name of the company because I know we're on, online and we're live here, but it's a fairly well-known um, Canadian company. And I worked there for nearly 20 years. I had a variety of different uh, you know, jobs and things that I did. I was uh, last uh, working as the director for a biopharmaceutical program that we were developing. Um, it was an eight-year program. It had a budget of about a billion dollars. And in that year, my last year there, um, I was responsible for a budget of about $150 million. So it was a you know, pretty substantial role that I was playing. But on January 31st, 2017, everything in my life changed. Everything. I went into work, normal day, you know, meet with the team, uh, and then I got a call from my boss who said, hey, Don, could you come to my office for, at 10 o'clock for a meeting? Now, my boss would call me all the time to come for meetings, and so it was, I didn't suspect a thing, not a thing. I walk in there, and the HR person is there, and I went, oh, no, because I'd seen this movie before um, in other people's lives, and uh, sure enough, uh, it was, thank you very much, Don, um, but you're done. It was surreal. It, you know, for those of you who've ever lost your job, I don't know about you, but for me, I went into, like, life just stopped, and everything, you know, tunnel vision, um, I didn't believe it. I thought, maybe, I'm, maybe I'll wake up, and, <laughs> and you know, this will all be a, a bad dream. But I knew, of course, that wasn't the case. And the way they do this is it's pretty, you know, bang, 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 bang. They don't give you a lot of time to kind of, you know, start sobbing and crying and, you know, getting all emotional and running down the halls and screaming, you know. They don't, give, they don't let you do that. They shut you into a room and they meet with this professional, you know, person that's going to help you transition into your new life. You know, it's like... Are you kidding? I liked my old life. Thank you. Could I have that back? And I remember sitting there and the guy's telling me, you know, he pushes this piece of paper in front of me that's got all the details of, you know, the package and everything they're going to give you. And, and you know, I'm going, I can't hear a word you're saying. Not one word. And my, my, my pulse was just pounding, right? Just pounding in my head. And I'm, and I'm like, I'm completely disoriented. And uh, I think we have a little video here of kind of what it was like for me. This is really short, but. That's, yeah, definitely that's what it was like, you know? Uh, poor Neo, just couldn't believe it. The desert of the real world. Um, so there's a lot of feelings, a lot of emotions um, that I went through. I'm sure you've heard about it. You know, you go through the disbelief, you go through the, the anger phase, you go through the sort of, you know, what can I do about this? How can I get back? What, whatever. You go through all these different emotions, and that's just in the first two minutes. And then you recycle back through that again. So eventually, they kind of escorted me out the door. Uh, the head of security for the company 
uh, came and did that, which was kind of nice because he was a friend and, uh, you know, he was nice about it, but it was like, okay, here we go. Now it's my turn. And you know, other people had left the company. So, but the, one of the things that happened right away, which was just devastating for me, was I had a BlackBerry uh, at the time. And uh, I know for some of you, it's like, what's that? Yeah, so anyway, um, but <clears throat> I made the mistake and they warned us about this. They said, don't keep anything personal on your BlackBerry because it's corporate, right? And if you ever, you know, if they ever want to, they can just wipe it all out, everything. So I had photographs, really special ones, you know, my grandma's grave in Wingham, and I had all kinds of things on my phone that were really important to me, never mind a, a contact list of like three, four hundred people. And as I walked out the door, phew, the Blackberry is wiped, wiped clean. I couldn't even phone my wife. I was like, I'm now in my car with a essentially giant paperweight for a Blackberry, and, and I'm going, what do I do now? I, I, was, I was completely lost. So I thought, well, who can I see? So I thought, well, my son Nick is right around the corner, and he was. He worked at a, a, a company just two blocks away. So I kind of drove over there, and I knocked on the door, and, and I told him, you know, that I was there, and could I see Nick? And you know, my son came out and, and I told him what happened and, and he said, all right, dad, well, let's, let's go for a coffee. So we went, we sat down, we had a coffee and I remember feeling pretty, you know, pretty emotional and, uh, you know, dads are supposed to be there for their kids and here's my poor son, Nick, having to deal with me being a little bit emotional <clears throat> and to his credit, you know, he just said, dad, you know what, you're going you're gonna to be okay. And, um, sorry. So having Nick there was, was really great, but now I had to face going home. And what am I going to do when I get home? So I got home. Megan wasn't there. But eventually she came home from whatever she was doing, and she walked in the door, and I just said, Honey, I've lost my job. And you know, some more tears, more, you know, more emotions. And um, it was that night that I really discovered the power of community because I turned to two of my dearest friends uh, who were, had been part of the cell that we were in for, for many years. And uh, I lived across the road from uh, Keith and Elizabeth. And so I told Keith what was happening and he called Kevin and Kevin came over and the two of them sat down with, with me in, in, um, in Keith's house. And they just let me talk. They just let me, you know, and let it all out, you know, the whole nine yards, you know, all this knot and trauma, everything, and they were just there for me, right? And, and you know, I'm so grateful to the two of them for, for, that, for that moment, because it got me through it, and they were, of course, encouraging. Of course, they were saying all the right things, but still, everything was just like a blur. Um, about six months prior to this day, I had booked to go and see a concert uh, with John Asbury and his daughter, Michelle. And it was a concert with a guy called Neil Morse. Um, how many people have heard of Neil Morse? Okay, a few of you. Okay, good. Well, by the end of today, you're going to know a lot more about him. He was a, he's a Christian um, uh, prog rocker, for lack of a better term, progressive rocker. And um, he writes these 
fantastic concept albums. And so that night, we were supposed to go to this concert. And I, I turned to Megan and I said, honey, I don't feel like going to a concert you know, now, after everything has happened. You know, I just want to sit at home and be miserable, basically, is what I was saying to myself. And, and uh, she said, well, you know, I really think you should go. And I said, oh, you know, and I, but eventually I did. So we went to the concert in, down in Toronto. And that night, I, I didn't know, I, I knew none of the songs. This is a concept album. It was brand new. So we're, we're listening to the concert. And it was pretty amazing. And halfway through, there was this song called The Breath of Angels. And I remember standing there going, you know, Lord, I, this is, you know, thinking about my life. What am I going to do? I was so concerned, obviously, having lost my job. What, what about the future? You know, am I going to be able to, to, you know, are we going to have to sell the house? Am I going to lose, am I going to chew up all of our investments? Because, you know, I'm old and, and I'm not, you know, going to get a job. And all these thoughts, you know. And this song, uh, Breath of Angels, was like, turned out to be like a worship song for, for me. And the words are really powerful. In fact, it's so powerful that when I talked to Jonathan about it, he said, well, I think we should play it. Uh, so we're actually going to play it later. Um, I had never been a consistent journaler. Um, I've, I've written stuff down in, in my life. Uh, I've been a Christian since 1973. And I kept various things. I would write stuff in, you know, whenever I felt there was something really cool that I wanted to write down, but I wasn't consistent in my journaling. But all of a sudden, one of the real benefits of losing your job is that you have time. <laughs> you now have time on your hands, and it's like every day you have time. So it was like, okay, so maybe I should spend more time, A, reading my Bible, praying, and maybe, you know, so I started to write some, some things down, and, uh, and this is my journey. This is now what I want to share with you. So um, from Matthew 6, we were, we were, I heard a sermon around about that time was talking about not worrying about tomorrow, but to trust in God, right? You all know the passage in Matthew 6. And um, the question that I wrote down was, can I really trust God to provide for me when lots of people around me were, who were my age and even younger were not finding work? You know, it's, it's, it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, God's going to look after you as in he will give you a job, which is the way I was thinking. Um, and I was concerned because maybe I won't, you know, look at that guy. Look, look, look at that guy over there. I mean, he's been 18 months. He still doesn't have a job, you know, and I started going into this spiral down. And um, from Psalm 13, 5, uh, I read, I trust in your unfailing love, but when I read it, I was aware I didn't. I wasn't trusting in God's unfailing love. I was, I was full of fear, okay? Um, you know, w when we get into trouble, <laughs> we, we typically run to God, right? But when we're not in trouble and life's going along pretty cool, we're just ticking and bopping, you know, God kind of can slide over to the side and we... we we forget about him. We, we, we're not consistent in our relationship with him. That certainly was, was me. Um, I was running to God at this point, but I was running to God to talk him into doing something that I wanted. <laughs> what did I want? <laughs> I wanted a job. I wanted to get back to normal life, right? I wanted him to fix my 
problem. But he wanted me to want him. I didn't know this then. Anyway, March, uh, we had booked to go on a trip with some friends to South Africa. And again, I was humming and hawing. I said, well, honey, you know, I need to be here. I need to be networking. I need to get out and, you know, you know, pound the pavement, look for work. And, uh, but we went off. And so we're in South Africa, and we went on this sort of walk, hike one day. And uh, I was standing literally like this on a, on a sort of a, a rock that was down. There was like a little beachy area. And I'm standing there like this, and I'm watching, you know, friends sort of walking around. And all of a sudden, this, this leg <laughs> that just slipped right out from underneath me. And I went down and I hyperextended my knee and I tore my Achilles tendon all like, like just like that, bang. And uh, it was really, really sore. <laughs> I remember uh, Kevin was there. And he came up and he said, what can I do? What, what can I do for you? What can I do? Because he knew that was like, he didn't know what happened. But there I was and uh, I'm a runner, okay? I, like I love to run. Well, especially then I love to run. And uh, Guess what? Now I'm watching that go up in smoke. So here I am. I'm all stressed. I'm not, I, you know, I don't have a job, and I and I and I was using running to at least get rid of some of that anxiety, and I could get out there and you know run and feel better about it, you know, everything. Well, now I can't run. Now I'm hobbling around. On anyway, so I spiraled even further down, right? And I started to question, you know, God, where are you? What are you doing? Um, but it was right at that time in March that I first read uh, Exodus 17, 1 to 7, and I was introduced to this uh, term, the waters of Meribah. And we'll come back to that in in just a moment. So April, uh, I became aware that all my hard work to find a job uh, was really born out of fear, anxiety, and worry. That's what was driving me, okay? And People were telling me, Don, why don't you just relax? Enjoy the summer, you know? Take your foot off the gas. Just relax and you know, stop all this, you know? And I'm going, if I do that, I'll never get a job. And um, <clears throat> I was saying to Megan at the time, I said, you know, honey, I've always been frustrated that it seems like I can explain my life, you know? And I wish just once, just once, God would do something for me out of the blue, just right out of the blue, where I can't say that I had anything to do with that. Okay, that's a spoiler alert. Just remember the out of the blue, okay? I'm going to come back to that too. So fast forward, get to August. Um, I was networking like crazy. They taught us how to do that. That's one of the great things of having a, you know, executive exit sort of counseling. And um, a lot of jobs would really get hot, and then they would die. And I was networking with tons of people. I was spending money driving all over the place. No job. I began to despair again. And then some well-meaning person said to me, well, you know, I think God is stripping away things to build your character. Well, that was really encouraging. <laughs> I said, oh, okay, so God's whole purpose in my life right now is to strip stuff away even more, I've already lost my job, what else could he take? You know, and I was really starting to accuse God of just wanting to take things out of my life. And I'm saying all these things to you this morning candidly and somewhat ashamedly. 
I got to a, a low point. Here's, I'm going to tell you the low point. Um, I was, I, I was praying. I went kind of, I forget where I was exactly. But I remember saying to the Lord these words. I said, Lord, I know what I'm doing today. What are you doing? <laughs> you know, it's a good thing God has got big shoulders and that he's confident in himself and doesn't worry about his people and what they might say. But I am ashamed that I got to that point. So on the 8th of November, 2017, it had been 10 months. And I had received yet another rejection from yet another company, and I felt pretty down. And I sat down for my quiet time, and I read Psalm 95, where this Meribah place is mentioned again, and it sounded familiar. So I decided maybe I should investigate what this is all about. And uh, so I just want to share the passage. We're going to pull up those slides, and uh, we'll read through them together. And I'm just going to read directly from my Bible here, so I don't have to look at the slides. So let's read uh, Exodus 17. This is verse starting at verse 1. At the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel left the wilderness of Sin, which is Sinai, by the way, and moved from place to place. Eventually, they camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. So once more, the people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Quiet, Moses said. Why are you complaining against me, and why are you testing the Lord? But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What should I do with these people? They are ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, walk out in front of the people, take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai. Strike the rock, and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock as he was told, and water gushed out as the elders looked on. Moses named the place Masa, which means test, and Meribah, which means arguing or quarrel, because the people of Israel argued with Moses and tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord here with us or not? So, I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to read the Old Testament and look at the the people of Israel and, and basically go, what is the matter with you people? You're just a bunch of whiners. Like you're walking around, you complain. God does these fantastic miracles. Like he split an entire, you know, part of the, the Red Sea in, 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 in half so they could walk through. And, and then it seems like just the next day they're going, well, we don't have anything to eat. <laughs> well, okay, you think that's a problem for God? Like, you know, he moves oceans apart. Um, and then so he gives them food. And then, oh, but we don't like this. And we, we, we wish we had the leeks and the onions back in Egypt. And it's like you read this stuff and you go, man, what is wrong with you people? Well, I have a new respect for the children of Israel. I really do. Uh, because 
Uh, I want to show you where they were when they started complaining. So we can go to the next slide, Liz. So this is just a picture. It uh, gives you an idea. Oh, gee, look at that. There's a place, lots of Tim Hortons around, five-star service, you know. You just have to call on your cell phone, and they'll show up with a drone and drop a nice pack. No, none of that, okay? Uh, maybe look at the night. Oh, look at that. That's ooh, it's a little parched, isn't it? Just, oh, I'm getting thirsty just looking at it. In fact, maybe I will have a glass of water. Um, so, hmm. Looks like there used to be a river there, maybe. Kind of like, ooh, uh, hard to say, right? So you get the picture. They were in this place where there was no water. And when we read no water, I mean no water. Now, I've actually been to this place. We went on a trip to Israel, and one of the cool things we got to do was we drove into the wilderness of Sinai, and then they marched us off the bus with water bottles, which I thought was wimping out. But anyway, they, uh, they marched us off the bus, and we walked for quite a while, and there was this one lone tree, like, way over there, and we walked all the way to that tree. By the time we got there, we were hot. And, of course, there was this, you know, talk about this uh, whole situation. So I want to just draw out a few key points, and you'll see how this relates to my journey. So the first thing that we see from the, uh, from the passage is that the people didn't randomly end up in the desert. It's not like they got up one morning and said, oh, let's, let's just walk into the desert. No, it says that they responded to the Lord's command. So who's in charge of how they got there? God was in charge. They were led by the Lord to a place of no water, apparently. They were led there by the God of love and grace and joy and peace. They, he took them to this place. They were in real danger of dying from lack of water. It wasn't fake. It wasn't like they were just complaining because it had been a while since they'd had their Starbucks. It was a real danger. It says that they were tormented by thirst. Let me tell you something. None of us in this room, or I doubt any of us, have been tormented by thirst. We get thirsty. We work, you know, oh, I'm a little thirsty. Maybe you've had a situation where you weren't able to get some water, but it didn't last very long. I mean, I think most of you know we can't live without water for three, four, five days is absolute max for human beings, depending on your situation. Mothers, obviously, were fearing for their children. Imagine being a mother in that situation. Your kids are crying because they're thirsty, and there's nothing you can do. Men were fearing for their families and their livestock, which basically was fearing for their investments, because that's what livestock represented. It represented their future. Starting to see a few connections here? <laughs> Animals would die. Everyone would die. So where is God? Where is his faithfulness? Where is his blessing? 
Imagine yourself in this situation. Is the Lord among us or not? And when I read that, something just went bang. And I realized that God was speaking to me. You could just leave up that last slide, Liz, the one with the, yeah, that one. Now, I'm a scientist. So I looked at this and I went, well, hold on a second. Is this a case of a miracle miracle, as in God manufactured water out of thin air? Or is this a miracle miracle, as in God did the split the rock thing, but the water was there all along? Well, guess what? It turns out that in the Sinai, there are rivers, underground rivers. And I think, personally, that it's reasonable to assume that God knew exactly where the water was. The people didn't know. As far as they were concerned, there was no water. But God knew. Of course, the rock was a miracle. You know, strike a rock and the rock splits and out comes the water. That's, that's pretty miraculous. It's further reasonable to assume that God intended to provide water for them. But they gave up trusting too soon. What if they had said, Moses you know, why'd you bring us out here? You know, there's no water. We're all going to die. But God must have a plan. Is God going to care? For, how is God going to do it? He has to be able to, he wouldn't lead us here. He wouldn't have done what he did back then and then leave us all to die. So he must have a plan. Yes, Moses? But no, that's not what they did. They gave up. They were trusting for a while until things really started to not look so good. And then they stopped. So it was around about this time that I, I turned to Megan, and I'll never forget it. I said to her, honey, God's going to strike the rock in my life. Now, listen, you need, those of you that know me, I'm not this big faith and power guy. You know, like I'm just going to go around with the, you know, preach it and name it and claim it. I was never that kind of person, but I started to believe that I needed to say this, that it was a proclamation, that I needed to put my mouth where my faith was growing. And like I said, you know, losing your job is not the most horrible thing that can happen to you. Um, I'm looking out at the crowd here, and I, I, I know there are people here that have far worse stories, and I don't want to pretend that Mine is anything like yours. I mean, we have people that have fallen off ladders and their life changed like dramatically. People have lost children. People have lost, you know, people in their lives. So I'm not trying to make this out into something that's not. It's just what happened to me. I repented. I had been maligning God's character, accusing him of, you know, you're just a mean old God. All you want to do is make my life miserable. I repented I turned to the Lord and I started to say, Lord, I trust you that you will strike the rock in my life. So, you remember that out of the blue thing and that, and the rock thing, just remember this. So, one week later, just one week, I got a call from a senior executive of a stem cell research company that I had never heard of. And I began an engagement with them. At this point, I had decided to 
hang a shingle on my door that said consultant, and I started consulting. Um, again, I was encouraged by a dear friend to do that. And this person um, said, you know, where they were from. Now, I don't have a contract with them or anything at this point, but fast forward, um, I did end up signing a contract and working for them. And the name of the company, I will tell you this, was Blue Rock. And it was the 17th of November that I got the call. Exodus 17, Blue Rock. I think God has a sense of humor. So I was supposed to work for them for, for uh, about three to six months. That was the, the deal. That ended up lasting three and a half years. Um, I did some preliminary work for them, and then they said, gee, Don, that, that was great. Do you think you could actually come on board and, and run a, a program? And so they asked me to head up the cardiac program, which was involved in, in um, uh, injecting cells into hearts to basically grow brand new heart tissue. Um, I worked in, a little bit in Parkinson's uh, disease, and I also worked in, uh, in, the, in the immunology side with, with T cells. Um, but the key is that during this time, working for this company, God restored many of the years and far more that the locusts had eaten. You know, I was worried when I wasn't working that I was, A, chewing through this package that I got, because it was, you know, it's limited, right? And that I was going to start to chew through all our investments, and then I was going to end up, you know, penniless. And God blessed uh, me and us uh, through this company, and um, and then I worked for another company when that came to an end, um, and that company was called Turnstone. <laughs> I was like, I said to the Lord, like, what's with the stones and rocks thing? Like, really? Like, come on. So, I want to draw this to a close, and I, I want to just share kind of what I've learned about things since then. The thing I noticed is that. Israel really suffered as they walked towards God's promises. Like, think about that for a minute. You know, suffering is when, you know, your life's not going well. But what if, what if God's plan for you to follow and, and get to the promises that he has for you actually require suffering? Because they suffered. Not just once, not just twice, many times. I believe that life is about suffering as we walk toward his promises. Part of God's goal for us in this life is that we learn to have no other gods before him. The number one sin of Israel was not faithlessness and all that stuff. It was idolatry. They kept substituting other gods for the God of Sinai, the God that delivered them out of Egypt. And God had to, for their own sakes, get rid of that sin from the nation of Israel. And it's interesting that it took two major events later on, exile to Babylon for Judah and exile to Assyria for Israel. Both of them were traumatic to the history of the nations of Israel and Judah but it cured them of idolatry. 
I think that when I look at my own life, the temptation to substitute other things for God that he wants in my life is strong, and we have to deal with it. Since that time, I've been on a a journey of renewal in my relationship with the Lord. I, uh, I used to think that, you know, I prayed this prayer in 1973, and I got filled with the Holy Spirit a little after that, and I read my Bible, and I pray, and I go to church, so I'm good. Tick, 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 tick. And, uh, you know, I'm going to heaven one day, and isn't that wonderful? And I've realized that that is not what it's about at all. It's about a real relationship with God, a love relationship where we walk with him all the time and that we can talk to him and he wants to talk with us. He wants to share his heart with us, but we need to come aside. We need to let him. And we need to be sure that we have no other gods before him. I haven't arrived at any kind of a, you know, spiritual pinnacle In fact, far from it, I'm learning every day through all kinds of circumstances and through all kinds of people. But seeking him and knowing him intimately is where I'm at right now. And maybe perhaps another time I can share more about about that. So God was faithful. But when I look back on the time I still feel a little bit guilty because I didn't understand what I do now about his desire for intimacy with me. I look back on it and I realize, yeah, I got to a place of faith, but it was still just based on getting my life sorted. I had faith that God was going to do something, which is fine. It's good, but it's not as good as, Lord, I just want to, be with you, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to trust you for all that other stuff. I'm going to put it aside for now because I want to just be with you. And I look back, and I think, wow, you know, so much of my seeking God was so I could get something. And there's nothing wrong with, with going to God and saying, God, I need help. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't mishear me. What I'm saying is we need to start with, Lord, you are enough for me. I don't need you and the pots and pans. I just need you. Thanks for listening. I hope that um, you feel encouraged that whatever you're going through or whatever you've been through, that God has a purpose. You don't have to know what it is. You may not know what it is, but... There's one thing you do know and you can know and you must know. And that is that whatever it is, he wants you. He wants you to draw near to him. And when you do, he is sufficient. So Jonathan always closes by saying, you know, more than coming to church and doing church, go and be the church. And I always like that because it is who we are. We, we reflect Jesus. And the more we hang with him, the more we are with him every day, the more we reflect him. And the more, the more the world will smell him around us and know 
that we've been with him. So go in peace. If you'd like prayer for anything that you may be going through right now, there's people that will gladly come. And I'll hang around a little bit and I'd be happy to pray with you. So go in peace. Go in Jesus' joy. Amen.